We're going to begin this morning a three-week mini-series on the topic of, of discipleship, just to kind of give you insight into how things sort of function uh, here and in the leading of, of any churches. When you come into, into fall, fall is typically because of the way our, our, um, our, our country functions. Everything revolves sort of around the, the school schedule. When you come into fall and you hit this period of September, it's kind of like a settling in period. And a lot of times that's when it's appropriate to do organizational things and talk about uh, organizational focuses. Um, add to that the fact that really as Pastor Dave and I and uh, uh, Pastor and other elders talked, um, we, we have become convinced that, that discipleship is at the heart and the core of, of what we must do. That, that, that of course, should be no, no shocking statement, the commission given by Christ to his disciples his own disciples, that they would go into the world and make disciples. And so that is our, our charge. It is our our, our, um, our our marching orders given by Christ to his followers. Um, and yet there's, a lot, there's this reality that a lot of time in the church we are making things, various things, but they're not always disciples, and we don't have a clear idea of what it means to, to make disciples. Uh, Secondarily, in the process of making a, a disciple, sometimes we are making a disciple, but the methodology that we are using is, is, um, is based in the concept of, of addition instead of multiplication, and it, and it functions slowly. And so we are making, it's not to say that often we are making no disciples, it's just that we're not making that many disciples, and we don't have a plan to make more and more disciples. And so if you're like me, if you said someone... Uh, Ask me what's the what's the 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 end result of, of your theology, and I would say world domination. Uh, I believe that not on my own behalf, but on on the behalf of of Jesus Christ. I do believe that He's Lord and, and King, uh, that that He reigns, that everything is put under Him. Uh, I do believe that the church has a role in that. Uh, I do believe that that the church, um, even though we know from Revelation, we're encountering in Revelation more and more persecution and more and more awful stuff going on. Um, I, I do believe that alongside all of that persecution, oftentimes there can be spiritual victory. And so we live in a, in a country where the cultural vestiges of, of Christianity are, are becoming less and less. So people who, who went to church every Sunday but had no commitment really to, to the things of, of Scripture, the things of Christ, they may be becoming less and less. But what's really happening is not that there's less Christians in our country, it's that there's less cultural Christian expression in our country. And so as we look around our country, it's actually good for us to look around and be able to assess and say, there really are not that many followers of Jesus in this, this country. It would have been good for us to assess that at any point over the last decades. It's just easier to, ex to assess now. I don't believe that we have significantly less Jesus followers. What I believe is we have a clearer way to see it because of the falling away of, Christ, uh, of cultural Christianity. And so while over the past decades, it might have been the tradition to go to church on Sunday, it might have been the tradition to not say certain things or do certain things, the reality is, is that those people were not uh, by and large, Christ followers. They were followers of a certain cultural system. I'll, I'll give you, you know, for example, that I didn't, didn't realize is that apparently the Amish, which we all think of as, as very committed to whatever the Amish are committed to, and um, 
obviously being a, an Amish person, is, uh, is, a, uh, is both a cultural and otherwise commitment, you would assume then that all the Amish who, uh, who have, in, in some sort of wisdom, decided that the 1800s are the most spiritual time in history, uh, and you with all of the things that make them obvious that this is a very, very, very spiritual group, but what I learned is that apparently uh, being Amish can be, can be cultural. I was talking to someone who's very familiar with, uh, very familiar with the, the Amish, and what I learned is that there's many Amish who, who are atheist. <laughs> there's Amish who are, who are agnostic. Um, alcoholism is, is rampant uh, amongst the Amish and all kinds of other things. And you would think, you committed to living like you're in the 1800s based on what? Well, it, it's just their culture. Right, it's a cultural thing, and so in a, in a lot of senses, the Christianity that we've come through in the in the preceding decades leading up to the one we're in, where's a lot of cultural Christianity. They showed up, they may have prayed, they may have done a lot of things, but their commitment to the actual person and way of Jesus Christ was not there. And so, so I, I do think that's our situation. We live in a time where all of that cultural Christianity is sort of falling away, and so now what you what you're starting to realize is that. Uh, contra the, the teachings of our of our, our conservative news shows uh, and, and radio shows that we were raised on is that the United States is not as much a Christian nation as we have been told, and that that Christianity is not as dominant as we might have once thought. So that's just a statement of the reality of our country. I said that to make this point. My heart is that Jesus would, re, would reign and Jesus would be king over the United States of America. Now, I don't care about that deeply in the, in the political sense, right, that, that he would reign over us. But as a people, more and more followers of Jesus and that Jesus would be worshipped by more and more people, that is, is my passion. So that's why I say world domination. I do believe that Jesus deserves to be worshipped. And the way Jesus is going to be, be worshipped a lot of times we think of that in terms of, of a phrase we might use called evangelism. We, we're going to go out and we're going to do evangelism. And evangelism is part of it. But the end result of evangelism is the making of converts. And the charge given by Jesus in, in, in his commission to, to his disciples is not to go into all the world and make converts, but rather it's to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them to, to obey. Right? And so we need... It's not so much that we need, need more converts, we need more disciples. And what we need is more disciples who are going to make disciples who will make disciples. And that is, that is, uh, that is a multiplication-based system. Uh, I should have brought the, the, the graph that I, that I used a few weeks ago when we were talking about this, but, uh, but it, it simply made, made the point that if you would make one disciple per year and teach that disciple to make one disciple per year, who would teach his disciple to make one disciple per year into perpetuity within 32 years, the, the population of the earth would be effectively converted and be a disciple of, of, of Jesus Christ. And so, so sometimes people think, well, small congregation in the city, not large, what's your connection, what are you, what are you doing, how are you really going to change the world? And we then place our emphasis into ideas like large churches, mega churches. We place our ideas, we've talked about this, this before, uh, I, I think last week we actually talked about this. We place our, 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 our hope into, into things that will attract, things that will be attractional. So we try and make better church services, fancier church services, funnier church services, all of those, those sorts of things. 
And those are not necessarily negatives. It's just that in, in the end goal of making disciples, uh, of fulfilling the commission that Christ has given to his to his to his disciples to his disciples to his followers that that it, it's just not enough, right? Um, at the end of the day, even if you took the largest the largest uh, mega church, uh, and I, I don't know what that is that even is anymore, but let's say there's some mega churches out there that have twenty four thousand people in them. If you were to dig deeper into those numbers, what you would discover is that they had 24,000 people driving from a significant amount of distance into a congregation, then driving home into neighborhoods where there was not sufficient, um, where there was not uh, sufficient Christian representation to actually change their neighborhood in any sort of significant way. And because the, of, of the way that they had come into the congregation, the way that they, they viewed it, their, their means for making more disciples then was to add to the 24,000. However, if you took all of those 24,000 people and you said to them simply, we're going to meet in simpler congregations and the way in which you're going to do discipleship is you are going to disciple another person and teach that person to disciple another person. You would have a lesser number than 24,000 early on, but the end result is you would make more and more and more disciples. So that's, that's, that's background. That's, that's all to say. This is why I say this. My passion, as always, Godwin Heights be transformed. My passion is that Godfrey Lee be transformed. My passion is that the city of Grand Rapids be transformed from the southeast side to the northwest side to the northeast side. My passion is that Michigan be transformed. My passion is that the United States be transformed. My passion is that the world be transformed. The only way we are going to see that transformation happen is through, is through fulfilling this commission to make disciples. And so Making disciples is not, is not just a, a trifling small thing in, in the grand scheme. We talk about lots of things in, in the church. We may even use the term a disciple, but we never really talk deeply about discipleship. And this is no small issue. It is the cornerstone issue uh, of the church. If you want to see your community change, your community change will be changed not through making converts. It will be changed through making disciples. Right? Disciples who are converted to Jesus, but then they obey him and teach others to do, to do the same. So that's why for the next three weeks we're going to talk about what it is to be a disciple and how Jesus disciple. We're, we're going to define that, that for you. We are going to emphasize it. It is major in the emphasis of everything we're, we're, we're doing right now. It is on our hearts. It, it is on our minds. We are going to continue to do it. So... We're going to dive into chapter 16 here in, in Matthew. Uh, I would simply say this. Let me remind you this of this, just to hold in the back of your mind. Most of you know this, but the crosswinds philosophy of discipleship is this. Time plus intentionality equals discipleship. And hopefully we'll explicate that and we will, we will draw that out. But we continue to believe that and we'll, I hope we will continue to, to, to see that uh, and we'll continue to, to lay that out here uh, as we go. But Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says this. Uh, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, what, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Here's, here's the deal. Before this directly before this, in verse 21 through 23, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and what he's talking to them about is this reality, is that soon he is going to, be, he is going to uh, go to his own death. And so he's talking to them 
about his own death, and he's talking to them about his own resurrection. The disciples bless them because uh, I feel like they're helpful to us in this way. They often spent times with time with Jesus and get Jesus completely wrong. Like they get to spend time with the actual Lord of Lords, King of Kings, talking to them, and they get confused all the time. That's helpful if you're people like us who are like, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and we get a little confused. Well, they had Jesus there, and so they don't always get exactly what he is saying, and that actually happens in the preceding, the preceding chapter. So Jesus prophesies to them, tells them, I'm going to go to my own death. This is what's going to happen, and, and they get upset. Peter's like, I won't let it happen. Jesus tells them, get me behind me. Uh, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God. God, but on the things of, of man. So he has just talked to them about the fact that he is going to go to his death. That's important for what he's going to say to us about being a disciple or follower of him. So Jesus, after talking about his own death, says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is connected to, to the earlier part, but let's just break that down. If anyone would come after me, and that means if anyone would follow Jesus, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, he's got to follow me. <laughs> Let him deny himself and come after me. Here's, here's, here's point one on, the, on the, the basic logic scale, by the way. To follow Jesus, you need to go where Jesus went. You need to go where Jesus goes. And that, that might seem simple, but that is step number one. And frankly, this is not always where we culturally are because we like to claim to be followers of Jesus, but we are not always following him. The, the, um, the, the childhood game of follow the leader is based upon doing what the leader does, right? And you lose when you don't do what the leader does does. And so the first step is to go in the way that Jesus is going. And frankly, in our culture, a lot of times we claim to be going in the direction that Jesus is going while walking in the opposite direction. And so, so that is not, I have made no statement of, of rocket science to you this morning, nothing genius, nothing brilliant there, just a simple observation that if you are going to claim to follow Jesus, you need to walk in the way that Jesus is going. You need to go in the way that Jesus is going. And that's what Jesus is going. If anyone would come after me, you've got to go after him. You have to go where he's going. And that's the point that he's going to make. So if you're going to go in the way that Jesus goes, or you're going to follow Jesus, be his disciple, the first step is you have to go after him. You have to go in the direction that he is going. And then give you the step, by the way, um, we're going to we're going to uh, give this week's this week step one of discipleship a name and that name is abandon. Okay, step number one is abandon. Why? It's right here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to walk in the way that Jesus is walking. And then there is a reality that walking in the way that Jesus it's counter or contrary to the way in which your flesh might naturally want to walk, right? You are going to have to do things that you do not naturally want to do. You are going to discover that following Jesus means that you have to following your own impulse, following your own reason, following your own desire, following your own, own self. Um, most of you have, have younger children, 
But let me, let me, uh, it's not really a prophecy, but let me pull back the screen and reveal to you the future nonetheless, is that I find that teenagers don't really care for doing what you ask them to do, typically, right? If you said to a teenager, I'd like you to eat ice cream, then, then yes, they're in, right? If I said to my teenagers, I'd like you to go out to eat with me, my teenagers would be in. Yes, let's, let's do that. If I said to my teenagers, let us go to the mall and I will get you new clothes, hat, whatever they, their desire of the day is, they would say yes. Here's what I've discovered, however, that oftentimes when talking to teenagers, I have to say things that shockingly are not all about teenagers, and they do not enjoy what I have to say as much. And so sometimes we say we're, we're embroiled currently in, in an ongoing war over the dishwasher. Um, our general feeling, our being, uh, being the government, the administration of the family, if you would, Libby and I, our general feeling is that it should not be a big deal for one of them to load the dishwasher and another one of them to unload the dishwasher. And so sometimes we'll say, hey, you're going to load the dishwasher, and to the other one, you unload the dishwasher. And typically what we get is a range of, of responses from, uh, we have one who, who does not want to do it because the food grosses him out uh, on the outside. Um, at least that's a reason. We have another who simply has declined. No, thank you. I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, my bad. Sorry, that's on me. My bad. I was thinking you did want to do that, and that's why I was, that's why I was making the request. I was just floating it out there. I was thinking that was for you. I mean, I was going to do it because I know we all love to do it, but I was like, no, that's not right. I should let you do it because it's so much fun, right? So... So I'm just pointing out here this reality, pulling back the, back the screen. And some of you are going to lie to yourself and go, my teenagers are going to be so good. Da, da, da. They're never going to be like that. And then we're all going to chuckle because we know your kids now. Um, <laughs> don't, don't lie to yourself. Okay. What I've noticed about teenagers is at least there's an honesty about them in that they, they, they do say no. Right? Um, that's a, that's a really faint praise, however. <laughs> I do not respond to that typically well at home, to be honest with you. I don't care for hearing that. And we do indeed take care of that. But it is funny that teenagers have the ability to view every request from, from their parents as, as exactly that, like a request. Like, hey, if you get time. Or, hey, I was really interested in, in you doing this. And, hey, I know you're, you're really busy, what with your, your life of going to school and laying on the couch. But, <laughs> but I'm going to need you to do that. They, they view everything as a, it's not that kind of request. And eventually, uh, no matter what we have to take away or what, whatever fight we have to engage in, that dishwasher is getting loaded and unloaded. And it's not going to be done by, by me. I've, I've, I've made a request. But here's, here's what I want to point out to you. Here, here's my point. Uh, if anyone would come after Jesus, they have to follow Jesus, and then they have to deny them, themselves. And here's the reality that I don't know if you get about following Jesus, is that, that, that Jesus is calling you out of your, your metaphorical teenage years 
to self-denial. Following Jesus is not all about what you want to do. It's not about your desire. It's not about, well, I don't really like to do that, or I don't really enjoy doing that. Oh, Jesus, that's a great request, but that's just not fun to me. That's just not my personality. That's just not how I was made. That's just not how I am. All of these statements are statements of of, of being self-directed, and self-direction is the opposite of being a disciple. You cannot be following Jesus and at the same time telling Jesus what you want to do. The hallmark, the beginning point of following Jesus is abandoning what you want to do. It's about denial. If any man would follow me, if any woman would follow me, first let him deny himself. That is a hard, hard pill to swallow. By the way, where do teenagers learn learn to be self-directed? Where do teenagers learn to say no? Where do teenagers learn to think only about themselves? Yes, the sin nature is in them. They are born to sin, but they learn that junk from us. Right, And we don't like to admit that, and we don't like to show it, but there's a reality in which the way in which we live act in our lives is all about self-direction. This is what I want. This is what I want to do. Here's what I want. Here's what I desire. Think about this. If you're in a, if you're in a home, uh, if, if you're in a home with, with children and, and you're married, and you have a, have, a, have a partner there, think about the last fight you had that your, your children might have seen. What was that fight about? Now, I don't know, but I'm going to guess that perhaps this fight was based in the concept of self-direction. In other words, you wanted to do one thing And they wanted to do another thing. And so the very hallmark of your fight was really about self-direction. You want to do something, they want to do something, and you both want to do different things. Are not a lot of our fights like that? Are not a lot of our conversations like that? We in our family, um, we like shoes. So we spend a lot of time looking up shoes on, on, the, on the internet, looking, looking for sales on, uh, on sneakers, which is not necessarily wrong, but it is then logical when my children go, hey dad, I found this other pair, can I get this pair, can I get this pair? And they spend all their time on eBay telling me about the stuff we could buy. Where did they learn it? They learned it from me, right? Where do they, children learn self-direction? They're sinners by nature, but you have helped them direct their sin in this way. Don't, don't get it twisted. And so all of which to say is that self-direction or doing what we want to do is a hallmark of fallen humanity. You want what you want, what you want, what you want. And you cannot even comprehend that maybe what you want is not the best thing. So back then to discipleship, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let her deny herself. That is a hard word to hear. It's not even as hard as the one we're going to say next, but we need to deal with it. Let them deny themselves. You deny yourself. You decide that what you want is less important than what Jesus wants. That is a hard decision, especially in an American culture where we are steeped in and seeped in and in every way filled up with this idea that our existence is about living our dream, right? Does not our culture teach us? You can do anything. You can be anything. Be anything you want to be. You can, uh, I'm thinking of commercials. Remember, be like Mike. Like Mike. You, can, you can't be like Mike. There was only one Mike. It's Michael Jordan. I can't stand him, but I understand he could play a little basketball. You're never going to be like Mike. But that's the thing. Dream. Dream big. You can do anything you set your mind to. You can do anything you can set your heart to. And so we live in a generation of people dreaming and setting their hearts to things that they will never 
ever, ever, ever accomplish. And so one of the harder things about our generation is a dream orientation. What do you dream about doing? What do you want to do? What is your dream? So at least in the generation before ours, they had a respect for this idea that everything was not about their dream. We had all kinds of fathers who went to jobs that they hated to earn money so that they could raise children that they loved, and they never got to talk about their dream. But in our time, hey, everybody, get your dream. What do you want to do? Who are you going to be? What? We are not prone to self-denial. We are prone to thinking and filling ourselves up with stories about our own dreams. All of which to say is this. Following Jesus is not about you. It is about denying you. It is about letting go of you. It is about looking you in the mirror and saying, no, you are not in charge of today. When you want to do what you want to do, it's about saying no. When you want to buy what you want to buy, it's about saying no. When you don't want to do what you know you ought to do, it's about doing it anyways. It is about denying yourself because self-direction is the enemy of following Jesus. You want to follow Jesus, stop trying to be in charge of your own life. Deny yourself. Well, that seems a little bit harsh, right? If that's harsh, check this out. If any man would come after me, first let him deny himself. Then let him take up his cross and follow me, right? And so we view that, well, that's a, that's a figurative saying. It's a nice figurative saying. We, it means that it's going to be a struggle and we pick up the, our cross and it just means we have to bear. Where's the saying come from? What's the saying come from? It comes from a person living in a Roman culture that knows that he's going to die on a cross in a matter of weeks. That's where it comes from. He's just foretold that that death was going to happen in verses 23, uh, uh, 21 through 23. He's just talked about how he's going to die. He is, as, as, the, as the Messiah knows how, how people are killed, he's talking about a Roman cross. And the reality is, is that you cannot read this verse without understanding the whole story of who Jesus is. This is, this is not a figurative statement. This is a more literal statement in this, is that if you want to come after Jesus, you should expect that you might die just like Jesus. That's what that means. So if you thought denying yourself was, was a minor inconvenience, check out this one. You are called to the reality of this, that even to the point of martyrdom, that might be what it takes to follow Jesus. Now, again, we've talked about this all throughout Revelation. We don't always get that because we're not, we don't have a lot of, a lot of persecution in, in our, our culture. But the reality is he said it to disciples, at least three of whom would literally die upon a cross just like he did. And he said it to them because he understood that following him was going to be a situation where you might end up with a literal cross. And now we can apply that in our time to, to doing the difficult things of following him. We can apply that to all of these things, but the first order application was he was literally saying to his disciples, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and be prepared for the fact that he is going to be killed on a harsh Roman instrument of, of, of death. That's the literal meaning of that. And so you need to grapple with the literal meaning of what it meant to be a disciple in that time before we try and apply it to our, to our own time. I'm reminded of a, of a Spurgeon quote that I'm about to butcher. But Spurgeon said something like this. He says, they tell me in this time that there's no persecution. And I say to them, maybe if they follow Jesus a little more like they ought, that they would discover that there is. And his point was simply this. He's like, who needs to persecute people who aren't really following 
like what's the point of persecution? What's the point of persecuting us? And I think a lot of what's happened in our own country, there's no persecution because there's no real following. So then, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See, the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is a call to self-denial, and it's a call to you may, you may lose everything, up to and including your life violently for following me. He said that to his disciples. You need to grapple with that. That he's not, that's, that's not flowery language. And it's not my language. And that's not like the kind of language where he's not saying, someone might say something mean to you about your beliefs at work. That's not what he means. Like, take up your cross and follow him. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, as Jesus is going to say here, that there's all kinds of people out there going, well, thanks, Jesus. I hear you on that self-denial thing. It's an interesting thought, Jesus. And uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting crosstalk. But given the chance for self-denial and perhaps brutal death, I'm going to go in a different direction. And so people would hear Jesus and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go another way because I want to be about me. And I don't know that we find a lot. This was actually very popular when I was younger where people are like, would say, I'm just going to find myself. I just want to find myself. Right? And people become very interested in who they are and what they are about in self-discovery and finding themselves and living the dream and just being true to themselves and all of those sorts of things. Jesus, in response to those people, said, for whoever would save his life, those people go, yeah, Jesus, that, that self-denial, that's not for me. They're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. The call to abandon in discipleship is a call to loss of, of life, but in one of those, those great reversals of the Christian story that happens all over, one of the great reversals in, is that in losing your life for Jesus, you discover life all the more, right? Still in Scripture, and it still says, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest right? Those, those things are true. And so it, it, when we discover this, Jesus is saying, you can go ahead and save your life by, by not following me, but you're going to lose it. It doesn't work out. It's the wrong way. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Essentially what Jesus is saying is this. He's like, you, know, you can go out and you can pursue yourself. You go out and pursue your dreams. You might even fulfill them. You might become famous. You might become rich. You might become the, the boss man. You might become anything that you dreamed of becoming. And you might fulfill those dreams. But at the end of the day, what you're going to discover is that you lost your life because those things are empty and they have no meaning. One of the more interesting quotes, and I believe it's from, from Jim Carrey, uh, the, the, the actor from like the mask and uh, the Grinch and that kind of stuff. He said, he's, uh, I wish that for a day everybody could be really rich and famous so they could see that it's not the answer. And that's a man who doesn't know the answer. But scripture's true whether people acknowledge it or not. 
There's a man who found his life. He found wealth. He found money. He found everything. And you can search for it in, in anything, man. The list of things that we search for meaning in is so long, isn't it? Right? We search for it in, in positions. Oh, I'm on a, on, on a local school board. Oh, that's, that's pretty good, but I don't know. Is there more? Oh, you're on a, you're on a, on a, a countywide school board. Oh, that's pretty good. Is it more? Is it more? Uh, you're, you're a football coach. Oh, that's pretty good, but is there, is there more? Your, uh, your, your kids are, are, are doing extremely well academically. Well, that's pretty good, but is there more? Your, your wife is highly respected and has all of those degrees. You can brag about that. I go, that's pretty good, but is there, is there more? You, you are at a point where, where you're comfortable, right? You had a few moments there early on where you're kind of poor, but you're not poor no more. I go, oh, that's, that's pretty good, but is there more? And so I can lay my life out end to end to end to end. And at the end of the day, nothing about my life that I laid down, not a one of those things has ever had the ability to fulfill me or fill me up. They were stuff, some of it that I saw, some of it that I dreamed of. From the time that I was a child, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to plant a church in this neighborhood, and I wanted to coach a football team in this neighborhood. I've done both of those things, and yet, if that's all there is, it is simply not enough. I can look into it, but which of those gives me meaning? Which of those gives, gives me, me the, 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 the reason to wake up in the morning? Which of those is enough? Because some days, when you put your heart into those things, you realize that while they are okay things, they make terrible gods. Terrible gods. Listen, football teams lose, and school boards can be difficult, and, and, and all of those, those sorts of things. Your children can get, can get all A's, but at the end of the day, it's a piece of paper in junior high. What does it mean? I can put it into, into, end, and none of those things has the power to, to fill me up. And I would guess that you guys are in the same situation. In fact, I know that you are. What, what are you searching for? What are you looking for? What thing's going to fill you up? Is it your kids? Your kids are awesome. They will not fill you up. I'm going to tell you something. Your kids make okay kids. They make terrible gods, right? It's on a spectrum. Some of your kids make great kids. Some of your kids are just kind of okay kids. I love them, you love them, but you know, they can't all be tens. Right? But let's say your kid was a 13. It's not enough. Right? That's a really good kid. It's really silly to have a junior high kid as a god, though. It's really silly to have a high school kid as a god. My kids play athletics. I care way too much about it sometimes. Right? Our, our feelings, our emotions will ebb and flow with the performance in a game, and then you have to step back and go, how stupid is this? It's an athletic contest with no lasting meaning, right? But that's, that's my God? See, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. We love sports. We love athletics. We, uh, we emphasize academics pretty strong in our house. We had a lot of all A's coming in. That's pretty awesome, but you know what? It's not enough. At the end of the day, that's going to get me meaning. That's going to get me out of, out of bed, right? Some of you have younger kids, and, and you're like, well, my kid walked at two months. Um, we seriously, we had someone tell us once, I can't remember the age, but it was too young. They're like, my baby rolled over already. And I'm like, listen, if your baby rolled over already, here's what I need you to do. Get a book. Put it under the other end of that crib. Because that, that crib should not be going downhill. Or stop leaving your baby on a hill, okay? Like, hey, left my baby at the top of that hill in Pine Ridge Park. He rolled down. 
right? We brag about weird stuff. My baby's walking at two months. My baby was led into little Einsteins. My baby's this. My baby. Yeah, they grow up. You know, that's a funny thing. Babies are such a such an interesting little silly god, right? Because because it's half the time we're like, my baby did this, and you're like, oh my goodness, my baby did this, right? They, they, they manage to do these beautiful things, and then they manage to never sleep and then produce all kinds of disgusting, uh, vile stuff from their body that you're constantly having to deal with, right? And then they grow into, like, like toddlerhood, and, and they grow, and I'm just saying, kids, what a, what a silly, silly God. Some of us are putting into relationships, oh, I love this person, this person's the one for me, and this person's... I want you to have strong relationships, and I want you to hear this. One of the ways to have the strongest, the, 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 the way to have the most messed up relationship is to put pressure on the person you're married to to be your God. They are not Jesus. They are not the Messiah, and they cannot do it. And so a lot of times we have broken relationships because we've got expectations. They didn't do this, and they didn't do that. They didn't do that. And at the end of the day, the problem was you were being self-directed, and you wanted something that they could not possibly give. That causes brokenness. I'm just trying to think of things that could cause brokenness. And obviously there's, there's stuff like with self-denial, there's material self-denial, like I want, so I get, and I spend, so I bought. Um, you all know the story of my guitar. It's in my office. Uh, the only thing I ever, ever bought without Libby's permission. Well, I sort of have permission. You know how that is. It was one of these. Well, I guess if you want to, that sort of thing. That might not be the voice. That's not... She's not here at the moment, so I could do any impression, but I won't. I, like, I don't know how she said that, because it was a long time ago, and uh, I've learned a lesson. Uh, and so, but she's like, if you want. But she did not want me to get in. I wanted me to get it, so I spent $800 on a guitar that I can only sort of play, right? And I have only sort of played like twice in the, in the, the last three years. Once so the boys and I could play Eye of the Tiger, right? Shane plays the drum, Jay plays the bass. We sing, we play Eye of the Tiger for hours on end. And the others, I was playing, trying to play some other song I heard on the radio, and I couldn't do it, right? <laughs> but I spent $800 on that thing, and I sort of keep it around as a, as a, as a reminder <laughs> of my own, own foolishness. So some of us, we just want to buy and we want to have, and we think that I honestly thought... Like, that thing taught me so much in life. Because I thought when I had that guitar that happiness would, like, would fill me. Like, joy would, uh, would come up in my soul. And I'd go, oh, I have that. It's beautiful. And I, you know, I don't know if I thought I was going to hug it, cuddle it. I don't know what I thought I was going to do it. But I certainly thought that there would be more happiness than I went home and went, yeah, I bought that. Now I own it. Right? It just never brought the, the joy that I thought it could, could bring. And so... If anyone would follow me, let him come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man to gain the world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The point is this, is that we can search, we can look, we can try, and at the end of the day, there's nothing that fills up what our soul needs except for Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the two points I want to make, and they're actually sort of the, the same point here. Point number one from this passage is that Jesus shows an absolute, total, and complete lack of shyness in declaring himself more worthy than everything else. He's not shy about it, right? Jesus is like, listen, give up everything, follow me, I'm better. Jesus is not shy about it at all. 
And so that, that says something to us. One, we need to decide whether, whether as, as disciples, whether we want to be disciples. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to understand this. He's not shy in declaring himself better than everything else. Jesus is essentially saying, give up everything you have. Give up your home, give up your car. They didn't have cars then, but give up your, 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 your possessions. You can give up your family. You can give up your wants. You can give up your desires. You can give up every dream. You can give up everything that is, and I am better. Jesus is looking into the eyes of his disciples, and he is saying that with an absolute and total lack of shyness. Jesus is better, and he says it from his own mouth. He's not shy about it. So what you need to decide then is whether you will decide side with Jesus and with his declaration that his own glory, his own self, that who he is, is better. Are you going to be a disciple of Jesus? It comes down to this. He says, give up everything. I'm better. You need to decide if you're going to be a disciple. If you're going to be a disciple, it means giving up everything. Now there are going to be days where you're going to wake up and you're going to try and get it back, right? Uh... Sometimes I feel like in, in the spiritual world, we function on a, on a pawn system, right? We know that we should not have something, so we take it, and we, we go, I give it up, and then we sort of start to feel bad, and then we go and chase and getting that thing back. We try and go back to the pawn shop and purchase back the thing we gave. I get that that is going to be our daily existence. We are not perfect until Jesus returns. We are not perfected, but it is a daily giving up. You need to decide if Jesus is right. He is not shy, though, in declaring himself better and more worthwhile and greater than everything in your life. There is no shyness in it. Jesus says that no matter what you think of, he is better. As a disciple, you need to decide whether you agree with him. Are you going to go the way that Jesus goes? Are you going to listen? Are you going to give up? Are you going to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him? Are you going to decide that he's better than your reputation? Are you going to decide that he's better than your occupation? Are you going to decide he's better than your preoccupation, your hobbies? Is he better than, than is he worth more than, than your, your husband and than your wife? And that, that sounds crazy. But what he's demanding is that he is Lord and that your spouse is not. You want to destroy a marriage? Make your spouse into an idol and watch that crumble, right? Are you going to decide that you will deny yourself take up your cross which means following jesus even to the point of death and follow him he said it to disciples who would literally be killed on a cross within within months and years but he's not shy about it so number one he's he's just not shy about it there's zero i'm better follow me that's what jesus says so Let's assume that you do decide. You go, yes, I'm going to follow him. Jesus will be my God, and I will be his disciple. I will deny myself. Then the question becomes, then, you, as you begin to disciple another person, right? And we challenged you. We challenged you a couple weeks ago, and one of the things we want you to do is we want all of you to move into one-to-one -one disciple relationships. Who are you discipling? Who are you spending time with? Who are you spending time plus intentionality with, which results in discipleship? Whose life are you speaking into? We challenged you to do that. So let's say you say, yes, I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. I will follow Jesus, and you start to disciple someone else. Here's the question for a discipler. Will you share Jesus total and complete lack of shyness about Jesus being better than everything. 
Because if you are going to disciple another person, if you are going to be their discipler, if you are going to, to help them to follow Jesus, you need to share the absolute and total lack of shyness that Jesus had about Jesus being worth more than everything. Because discipleship breaks down when we become shy or ashamed of this reality. Here's what I mean. In a discipleship relationship, sometimes what happens is discipleship relationships, and we don't use that terminology a lot. That's what we're talking about. We use accountability relationships. Discipleship is a word that's in the Bible, though. And accountability is a part of that. But we call them accountability relationships a lot of times. And so I'm meeting with another person for accountability. But what I realize a lot about accountability is that sometimes a person can come to you, confess the same sin, the same wrong, the same thing again and again and again and again and again. And you will sit with that person and you will affirm them and you will love them and you will hold their hands and you will pray for them and you will cuddle them emotionally. But you will never look them in the eye and say to them, you need to deny yourself. The reason you're in that situation is because you love your sin more than Jesus and you need to stop sinning. See, Jesus wasn't ashamed. He said, if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, follow me. If anyone finds his life, he will lose it. But if he loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Jesus is not shy that he is better. If you are going to disciple another person, you must share his lack of shyness about this. He is better than everything else. And if you're going to disciple a person, you must look at them and speak truth to them. You do not need to speak that truth violently, right? You don't need to speak that truth in a, in a rude way. We always tease, some of you have seen, probably still on YouTube, uh, out there someplace, where we did a video once about the difference between men and women in, in a community group. Men can sometimes be too harsh. Women are usually the opposite. I am not uh, telling you that you need to be harsh and angry. I'm telling you, you need to be honest. And if you are discipling another person and the problem in their life is sin, you need to tell them to stop. You need to ask them to deny themselves. If their problem is that they are, they are making an idol of something, you need to tell them to deny it. If the problem is, is that they just shared with you, they're sad because they really, 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 really want to buy something and they just don't have the money and they think they might do it anyways, you need to say to them, dummy, don't do it. Deny yourself. Jesus was not shy about that. He might not have said it just like that. But he wasn't shy about it. And the question is, will we be shy about it? If your friend comes to you and they share to you for, with you for the millionth time that they are struggling with, with lust, at some point you need to look them in the eye and say, stop. Deny yourself. Right? People do need to be loved and they do need to be cared for, but they also need to be confronted with this reality that they continue to find their joy and their peace and their support in something other than Jesus. They are on the, on the way to losing their life, not on the way to find it. And that Jesus is not shy about declaring himself all that there is. And so if we are going to disciple people, we need to not be shy about speaking the greatness of Jesus into people. We need to tell them to stop. And so... I think, honestly, honestly, this is, this is one of the hardest things we do as, as disciples and in relationship. Because I think we get together and we try and hold each other accountable and we talk group stuff and we do that. But seldom do we look another person in the eye and go, listen, dude, the problem is you're in sin. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. He's worth more. And that's across the board. If you're going to be a discipler, 
Are you going to dare to be a disciple like Jesus was? And are you going to be like Jesus and share his lack of shyness at this reality that Jesus is more? Jesus is better. Jesus is more wonderful, more amazing, more powerful, more fulfilling, more everything than whatever they have in their life at any given moment. Will you do that? Sometimes it's difficult because you're afraid, well, if I say that, maybe I'll lose a friend. And if I lose the friend, how can I continue this relationship? And and there is a tension there. I get it. But at the same time, if you are to disciple them, and if you believe that Jesus really is worth more, when will you speak that into their lives? And how hateful of you is it to not speak that into their lives if you know it to be true? So our our, our two questions come down to this. Are you personally willing to share Jesus or, or in your life, will you commit to believing that Jesus is worth more? Will you, will you agree with Jesus' lack of shyness about declaring himself more meaningful than everything? Will you go, yes, I choose Jesus. I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. And then secondly, if in doing that, as you disciple others, will you share Jesus' lack of shyness when you deal with them? We need to call people to abandon. Here's the, here's the I feel like, a, like, a, like somehow we, we got trapped in the kind of the, the bad news arc of that, right? But that, that's not a bad news thing, right? When Jesus goes, goes, I'm worth more. No, he means he's worth more. And he's not calling you to an awful life. He's calling you to a better life. The reason he says it is because he knows he's worth more and he knows he's better and he knows he's more amazing. He has no shame in saying he knows that a day is coming when there's a new heaven and a new earth and everything's perfect and everything is right and everything is good. He knows that a relationship with him is, is what you're desiring. He knows how you were designed. He knows how you were built. He knows how you were made. He was there at creation. He was there when you were spoken into being. He was there when the fall happened that messed this all up but understand this Jesus knows that you were made for him he knows that and when he declares himself worth more he said when he says take up your cross go ahead he knows that even death on a cross is not is not in its awfulness more awful than him and his greatness and so I guess the good news is this trust this Jesus is worth it he's worth more He's not asking you to take up your cross and only get a cross. He's asking you to take up your cross and get him. He's not asking you to deny yourself and live in self-denial. He's asking you to deny yourself so that he can shower you with his goodness, his mercy, his grace, and his riches. He is worth it. So don't take this message as good news, but I'm asking you, do you dare to declare the complexity of the good news, which sometimes comes with the bad news in the human sense that we must deny ourselves? Jesus was not shy about it. Will we be? Step one, guys, in following Jesus is abandoning ourselves. May we chase after him. Pray with me. Jesus.